so I've been asked a whole bunch uh, this week what my thoughts are on uh, this, this uh, first slide here. Um, so instead of being asked by all of you individually, I thought I would just address it as a whole. Uh, here's some of the prominent questions I've been asked. Uh, Mark, are you surprised? Mark, are you caught off guard? Mark, does this change uh, the way you live, teach, parent? Um, and, and my consistent answer um, has been no. I'm not surprised. I'm 100% not caught off guard. Um, this doesn't all of a sudden mean something more the day after than the day before. The culture was just as much in need of Jesus as the gavel swung as it was 20 minutes before that moment. Um, what it does do is it hones us in to the irony of uh, this picture. Okay, so this picture started circulating. The message attached being love wins. Struck me as one of the most ironic pictures that there could be, because it's true. This right here is 100% true. Love does win and will win. First John 4 says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Uh, here's what the word says, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So God defines love. And because God embodied love in his son Jesus, triumphed over sin, conquered over death, then that means, yes, once, forever, now, forever, love does win. And uh, so people have still asked me, all right, Mark, I, I understand. You're certainly riled up on love. So Mark, are you saying that same-sex marriage is biblical? Clearly and decisively, no, it is not biblical. There is no contention. You cannot twist scripture any way, shape, or form to say it any other way. Same-sex marriage is not biblical. But what should we do then? What should be our response? Okay. Uh, Jesus says that the two greatest commandments are to love God and love people. If God is the originator and definer of love then the Christian response should be that of not running from the truth, but embracing the truth and doing so in love. Does it mean that we cower or that we sit back? No, but what it doesn't mean is that we become bigots. What it doesn't mean is that our picket sign is held high, as in a heart of hatred. We start confusing what it is that we're against. We're against sin. We're for Jesus, and therefore we long for people, just like we have experienced, to know the power and love of Christ. What I'm against is sin. I don't like sin in my life. I don't like it in anyone else's. What I do enjoy is the grace of Christ. I need it just as much as anyone else. I'm not exempt from it. I'm desperate for it. And so I hope and pray that if any of your response has been to go to Facebook and start all of a sudden making this you know, 
the Christian issue. Let me make sure you understand. The Christian issue is there is an enemy and there is a victor. Okay? The enemy thinks he's winning. He's not. The victor has won, will win, and anyone who's with him will share in that victory, period. That's the truth. Okay? So let me just make sure we're all on the same page. What changes here? Absolutely nothing. Before this, we preach Christ, Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ coming again, and after this, we'll preach Christ, Christ Christ crucified, Christ risen, and Christ coming again. This is a Christ-centric church, period, and no issue's going to change that. Does that make sense to everybody? I just want to make sure we're all on the same page, okay? So, yes, the irony of this picture is that love does win. You're like, Mark, you need to settle down. Well... The problem is, even though I'm not on the book of face, I hear that um, <laughs> I hear that some of you are making some errant decisions in how you're taking a stand. Listen, start loving people for the glory of Christ. Start, stop being empowered and thinking that your voice uh, can be heard in that kind of form and change minds and hearts. Um, only God changes hearts. Let's ask him to do a good thing, all right? Now, all of that said, all right, we, like, we come to a passage tonight, oh dear heavens, okay? This is maybe the, like, bedrock Paul text. It's been preached up and down, all right? I, I did a little research. John Piper, okay, some of you guys have heard of him, okay? John Piper preached his candidate sermon at Bethlehem Baptist in 1980 on this passage. In other words, this passage was his interview sermon, okay? So, I mean, this is an epic, epic passage, But what I think has happened is I think we've mistaught it. I think we've misunderstood it. I think we've taken it for granted. We're not going to do that tonight. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray. We're going to ask God to come down and reign supreme in this room. We're going to have some fun. You guys with me? All right. So God, I thank you for my friends that are here, brothers and sisters alike. I thank you for the stories that they represent, the places in life that they come from. And I pray right now, God, that you will do an incredible work in our hearts. Teach us, convict us, and challenge us from your scripture. Leave self-help and hunker us into your word. In your great name, amen. So open your Bibles or turn in your tablets or phones to Philippians chapter 1. We're actually going to start where we left off last week in the middle of chapter 1 and then pick up to where we're going because uh, there's certainly a, uh, a launch pad from where we ended last week. So Philippians chapter 1 verse 15 if you're, if you're brand new here, thank you for coming. Okay, my name's Mark, one of the pastors here. It's an honor to have you here. Uh, we, we walk through uh, passages in the scripture, books of the Bible. Okay, so we're not here to teach any kind of social relativ- uh, relativism. In other words, uh, we just want to hang in God's word. So our, our book or letter of choice this summer is Philippians. This is week three of 10. Here we go, verse 15 of chapter one. Some indeed, Paul says, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love. Remember this? He's talking like there are some that are contentious. They preach for their own sake, knowing that I am uh, uh, put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ, verse 17, out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. He says epically in verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He's like, look, the thing that really interests me, he's saying, is that Christ is proclaimed. So in pretense, those people got wrong motives. As long as they're preaching Christ and the right gospel, preach on. 
or in truth, preach on. I want Christ to be proclaimed. And so now in what is considered verse 18b, let's start right here. The scripture says this, yes, I will rejoice emphatically, okay, verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Huge opportunity to grow in prayer from this. Listen, first of all, it's so interesting to me that prayer is considered one of our most difficult things. It kind of doesn't make sense, does it? Like we're given access to the throne of God through Christ. We get to like talk and commune with God. And yet it's something that A, we completely take for granted and B, miss so many opportunities to enjoy intimacy. What Paul is saying is, you are praying from afar, Philippi. And those prayers have been answered and they're even affecting my deliverance. Like they're even affecting my very persona. Some of you have had long distance relationships before. Anybody here? Okay, anyone in a long distance relationship now? Okay, long distance relationship now? I want to talk to you. Anybody? No long distance relationships at all? Okay. How, wh- so where is your girlfriend? Haiti, Jamaica, and Belize. How often do you, do you talk to her at all? Hold on, say that again. Oh, 12. You've talked to her 12 times in 184 days. Comes back tomorrow of all days? It's like we... It's like we set this up. And like here she comes down the aisle. It's like, you know, that would have been, been good. That would have been good. <laughs> Listen, it's, long this relationship's tough, right? Would you say it's been tough? Yes. Just say yes for the pur- purpose of the moment, okay? <laughs> yes, it's been tough. It is tough, all right? We struggle to pray for things right in our face. Paul is encouraging Philippi because they've been praying from afar. And I've, I've told you guys before, it's been years since Paul was there. Think about the prayers for the missionaries on the mission field And they'll never be able to thank you for praying. Do you only pray for people that you get to tell them that you're praying so that they thank you? Is the majority of your prayer life done in such a way that it ultimately brings glory back on yourself? You guys know this. One of my least favorite deceptions of Christianity is I'm praying for you. I mean, I'm going to throw out a percentage here, but there's a 75, 80% of that time it's completely a lie. When people tell me that, I'm like, let's throw down right now. I got time. You got time? Just pray. Hey, I'm praying for you, brother. Okay, great. Now, now's great. Let's do this. I'm not going anywhere, right? So this church is praying for Paul from afar. He's encouraged by it. He says, not just your prayers, but also the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, which is a weird way of saying the Holy Spirit. We don't see this too many times in the New Testament. And he says, this will turn out for my deliverance. So what does he mean by deliverance? Is it his deliverance from the prison cell, which he's in? Maybe. Is it deliverance from the flesh? In other words, his death or Christ coming home? Maybe. But the amazing thing for the believer is that no matter what, if you find yourself in Christ, a son of his, if he's your savior, then there is never not a point, how about that for a double negative, when you're not going to be delivered. You are always in the journey or in the process of deliverance. There is always the promise of deliverance in all times. Um, so I, I was at Wapahorse Pool. Um, this is 
Last weekend, I got to share a story from Wapa Horse uh, last week about my son Dawson. This story's about me, okay? So my kids talked me into going on this uh, little um, uh, ride where you sit in the, the little inner tube thing, you know? And I kind of thought it was for men of my size. Um, you know, it seemed natural, and there were certainly some others. But So I get on this thing, and, and I'm kind of, you know, you go down this little, this little way, and, you know, you're starting to, and then you end up, some of you guys that have been there, you end up in this little pool, and the lifeguard has to, like, pull you over to the entrance to the slide, which is already humbling, right? I'm like, I'm a grown man. Like, can I just get on by myself, you know? So he pulls me over to the entrance of this slide, okay? And then he literally, how about this for humiliating? He's literally having to, like, hoist me. <laughs> I'm like, I'm really not that in that bad of shape. You know, he's like, sir, can you help me a little bit, you know? And he, I, so listen to this. I get over the crest, okay? I'm not a scientist. I do not know what happened. But as I get over the crest of this, all of a sudden there was a massive suction cup encounter and my back gets suctioned to like to the slide I'm not going anywhere all right I'm literally suction cup to the slide now some of you get, some of you get claustrophobic some of you have been stuck in elevators like some of you get that feeling you can't go anywhere I'm serious I thought I, it was over I'm, I'm not kidding I'm like trying with all of my might to get myself off of this thing Literally imagine the strongest suction cup ever. I do not know what happened. It just happened. I turn around, the lifeguard's like, mm, you know, like I'm, I'm like begging for help. Like, give me, help a brother out here, you know? But there's literally this point. I was there for, and I'm serious, this is not an exaggeration, 45 seconds. I mean, there's kids like, hey, come on, big boys. You know, like, we got to go. The, the moment, seriously, the moment where I felt like I am not getting out of this. I mean, I was, and I'm, this is a true story, I was like completely overcome with fear. So, Ben, I go down to the bottom, I get up, and my wife is just looking at me, I'm like, what's wrong? I turn around, my entire back is like one massive hickey, I mean, it's just like huge, <laughs> literally, the whole thing is black and blue, it's, I still have marks, still, this is like a week ago, okay, thinking about suing some folks up in there, you know what I mean, <laughs> anti, listen, like, the feeling of not being able to be delivered was overwhelming. And, and I'm serious. Like, I was fearful. It's hard to explain, but, but you guys know what this is like. For those of you that, that have ever struggled being claustrophobic or, or if you've ever had that sense of, like, there's no escape, you know the power of that. So what about being in situations where there's always escape? Where you know you're always going to be delivered? Where you know that no matter what happens it's going to end up good. You would think that it should and would prompt a freedom, uh, the kind of life that is lived with like this reckless abandonment. So Paul claims victory in this. Prayers, the work of the spirit of Jesus Christ is gonna lead to my de uh, deliverance. Then he says in verse 20, I love this. And this whole first section is the heart of Paul. Okay. There's two sections, the heart of Paul, and the second half is two Christmas presents. We'll get there, verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be, or that I will not be at all ashamed, but that will, with full courage, now as always, Christ be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He's saying, I want in all ways and in all things for Christ to be honored in my flesh. Life or death, it doesn't matter. I want him to be glorified. 
Here's what I've realized. If that's what you desire, if you realize that your body's a temple, let me explain why. Okay, in the Old Testament, God's presence was in the Holy of Holies in a tabernacle. The beautiful thing is, as Christ comes and makes way for God to now interact with his people through Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, moves from the idea of a tabernacle to literally live in us. And so when the Bible calls our bodies a temple unto the Lord, it's because the Spirit of God is in us. We're literally a mobile, moving tabernacle of God. It's crazy. So if you, do, if you desire, if you long for your body to honor God in all things, then you will 100% of the time be faced with opportunities to be ashamed. If you desire to completely, selflessly proclaim Christ in all ways and in all things, you will be met with opportunities to be ashamed about it. And Paul's confessing this. He's saying, like, I, like I, I want courage to not shrink back, to not, in, in this opportunity when they come, to all of a sudden say that I'm not interested in Jesus. Can we just uh, maybe agree with this? Don't you have in your mind this picture of the follower of Christ, and maybe it's you, that just has this like unbridled passion and zeal for Christ that is unchanged by anything? Don't you have that picture in your mind? So why is it then that it feels so distant from your reality now? You're like, man, I shrink back in a moment's notice. I mean, any friend that begins to ridicule me, I'm like, I turn the other way, right? The, the Bible says turn the other cheek, so I misappropriate that and then just do that all the time. That's not what Paul's saying. He, I want courage to be able to make my stand. And then he says this. Next slide. I mean, this is like one of the passages in the scripture, okay? Some of you guys have uh, a tat with this on it. Maybe some of you guys looks like this. Next slide. Um, anyone have this, the, to live as Christ that eyes gain tat? Anyone here have that? Philippians 121. Some of you guys are like, not bad, not bad, all right? You can like, you know, get it in the Greek or something, make it look a little cooler. This is a true story. I don't know how this worked out. But in all my Google image searches, you have to be careful. You have to make sure your, your safe search is on. I, I Google image, live as Christ to die's gate. And someone has this on their lower back. And I'm just like, that seems weird. You know? And it was like, to live as Christ, to die is gain. You know? Right on the love handles. Um, right on the suction cup. Here we go. Um, next slide. Uh, there's, there's books. In, in fact, even a recent one. Okay, Matt Chandler, famous dude here, great pastor, great communicator. He wrote a book called To Live as Christ, To Die as Gain. Tons of next slide Christian uh, uh, paraphernalia or Christian imagery um, that has the same verbiage on it. Um, there's a problem with all three of the things I just showed you. Let me show you the text again. Next slide. Look at it. Okay, let's cue the graphic again. Do you guys see the problem? Verse 21, look at it. The book, the tat, the image, and this is consistent, are missing three words. Go, go home and Google this passage 
And what you're going to see is a consistency of missing what I would say is one of the key components of verse 21. Paul saying, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's not my mama's faith. It's not my grandmother's faith. For to me. Now, let me, let me explain what the church is because I think this is a little confusing. Okay. Uh, some of you think that the church, like that we, we submit to Christian philosophy like this and we come together and we get to kind of ride on one another's coattails. So there's a few people in here that lead out. All the rest of us kind of jump on the bandwagon, uh, feed off their faith, encouraged by their faith, and kind of somehow uh, miraculously love God through them. Uh, but what the church is actually are individuals, you, who have said, for to me. It's not my mama's faith. It's not my grandma's faith. It's not my church's faith. It's not what they say to believe. It's not what they say to believe. It's what I believe. For to me, no one else, to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. It's the essence of Christ's centrality and it's yours. So then what the church is, is a collection of people who are individually claiming victory in the power of Christ for themselves, and they get to come together and be a part of what's called the body of Christ and be a family because they all have the gift of the Spirit within them. That's the church. But so many of you have convinced yourselves that you have faith, but in reality, it's your friend's faith. It's your mom's faith. I have to say, though, I'm so encouraged by so many of you at such a young age, so passionate for the person of Christ. Don't let that passion fade. It's, it's a blessing to us all. Now, there's a lot of work to do here, okay? And I want to begin with this morbid thought. Life and death. Such an interesting, cataclysmic, opposing, you know, phrase. I mean, this is the essence of our reality, okay? I think, I think when you start thinking of the timeline of your life, most of you don't think of it in terms of this, okay? Uh, most of you, it's kind of this continuum I want to contain tonight that at the moment life begins, you're in the process of dying. How's that for encouragement, right? Like a lot, a lot of times we talk about, you know, you'll hear like 32 or 35-year-olds say, man, I'm just hitting my prime, you know, like I'm just getting going. No, in reality, when life begins, you're in the process of dying, okay? That's not a, that's not a popular teaching, you know, especially in a culture that is infatuated with, you know, Yoga, and that was a bad example. Um, fitness, all right? We're infatuated with like making our body better, but in reality, what we're doing is, is we're trying to prolong the inevitable that is for sure coming. The moment life begins, it's in the process of dying. But something happened for Paul. Something happened that changed the timeline. Uh, for Paul, next slide, all of a sudden, Christ interjects. All of a sudden, Christ shows up right in the heat of that timeline. Paul is literally, for some of you uh, that know the story, he's on the path to kill or persecute Christians. And Christ enters into his timeline and says, no, now you're mine. You're no longer going to kill Christians. Actually, what's going to happen is you are going to be killed for being a Christian. How about the amazing irony of a great God that can flip the script like that for his glory? 
Christ interjects. And what happens at that point is Paul's whole timeline and perspective of his life and death change. And what happens is all of a sudden, his life and his death, next slide, get focused solely on Christ. And so when he says to live as Christ and to die as gain, it is the summation of someone who is living a Christ-centric life. My life is his, my death is his. Here, God, do what you want. I'm all yours. I'm now no longer just in the process of dying. Actually, my whole scheme of life and death have completely been flipped upside down. It's the power of Christ. What happens, though, is this starts to make an entrance. Next slide. Fear. And when fear makes an entrance, creating either either a fear of death or a fear of life, then Christ all of a sudden becomes, next slide, uh, almost a distant memory, and our life and our death are completely summarized in fear. Now, um, just a few people in this room know this story, but I want to tell it to you anyway. Uh, Last November, I started to feel something in my throat. And um, looked, you know, you got got your little flashlight on your phone, looked in there, I'm like, oh my goodness, like that's, it looks like more like more than a swollen tonsil. And the unfortunate thing about Google is you Google like lump and throat and you instantly have 17 diseases, you know what I mean? Like, and that's what happened. I go home, I Google, all of a sudden I've diagnosed myself with all kinds of things. But my greatest sin is that I decide that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to process through it alone. I don't even tell my wife. I'm, like, I'm just going to act like I'm all right. I'm just going to, but in reality, like, I thought I had cancer and I thought I was dying. And so finally, we, we, we go a month like this. And I'm like battling in and out, like I'm looking in my throat 20 times a day, just like to to gauge its growth. I've like literally gone as far as to stick like a measuring stick in my throat to see if it was growing at all, okay? That's how convoluted I got. So finally my wife, I'm like down in the bathroom and she she catches me looking with my flashlight phone into my throat. She's like, you got a cavity or something? Like, what are you doing, you know? It's like, babe, I got this thing in my throat. I'm really worried that I have cancer. Many of you guys know we've been journeying with a family here that's, been, that's very close to my wife and I. She has cancer. When you see a 38-year-old get cancer, like, there's just, like you realize that you're not invincible like you thought you were. So my wife, in all of her wisdom, she says, why don't you go to the doctor? Okay. I convinced myself if I didn't go to the doctor, then I didn't have cancer, Right? Because if I just don't go, then he can't tell me that I do. So it's better just to live in fear. So I finally make an appointment. And I, like, I remember this day, like, it, make an appointment, show up at the specialist. You know, dude walks in, and I mean, I'm just like, seriously, gripped with fear. I'm pale. He, he's like, are you all right? I'm like, dude, just come on. Just give me, like, just look in there and tell me I got three months. Like, let's go, you know. And so he puts on his, you know, binocular or whatever stuff, and he starts looking in there, and 
you know, he's in there for a good minute, you know, and he pulls out. He's like, well, one thing's for sure. You got something in your throat. <laughs> but he's like, it's, it's benign lymphatic tissue. He said, probably from the years of speaking or whatever, like, you know, you've, you basically have some scar tissue. But he's like, it's not cancer, so you're going to be all right. And all of the tension and anxiety and fear, I literally wept on that chair like a two-year-old without his pacifier. And this doctor just was like, he like, he like he's like, are you, are you all right, man? <laughs> Seriously, like, I could not control myself. That's what fear does. Uh, since then, I've had the chance to repent of many things in that journey, wanting to go through it alone, the anxiety. I wish I could stand before you and say that I never fear death, but Instead, I stand in before you and say, like, I'm a broken man, and I got really scared. And what I realized is when you fear death, you can't really live fully in the essence and centrality of Christ. So how about on the other side? How about the fear of life? Well, what's happened for some of you, and certainly has happened for me at times, is all of a sudden the enemy starts whispering in your ear, hey, Remember that sin from a couple years ago? That was a bad one. Remember that one? Yeah, you know what? Actually, you're completely disqualified from being a Christian because of that one. Hey, you're still unforgiven. Hey, God hasn't forgiven you for that one. Hey, God remembers that one. And then what happens when, when, when that starts to like, create this void in your heart is you start to feel guilt and condemnation. And so then you're fearful of living. Because you're like, you're right, I'm a, I'm a phony, I'm a fake, I'm a, I'm a punk. Like, I, I, I can't even live now. And then when those two things coexist, you have a fear of life and a fear of death, and you are completely gripped by the enemy. That is not the power of Christ. I've never understood this passage in 1 John 4, but now all of a sudden I understand it. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. In other words, in the perfect love of Christ, fear can be gone because my life isn't condemned because I'm found in Jesus and my death is assured because of the power of Christ. So then I can live in light of Jesus and I know if I die that I'm with him. So when Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain, for me, what he's saying is perfect love has driven out fear. And now I live with no fear, and if I die, whatever, I'm with him, and that's all I need. That's Christ's centrality. This verse ends by saying this, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. What if tonight we just like threw in a big heap in the middle of this whole room all of our fear? Wouldn't it be freeing? Fear of being found out like some of you have. Man, if they find out about that, I'll lose all these relationships. Fear of being left out. The fear of being accepted. Fear of being loved and cared for. And on and on and on, my friends, our fears pull away Christ's centrality. I've certainly experienced it. My guess is you have as well. So for me to live as Christ and to die as gain is not a Christian philosophy. It's the statement of victory of one who is assured, not in his own strength or her own strength, 
but in the power of Christ. Are you guys with me? Because I always thought in my mind, like, if I could just say that, then I would be hardcore. Right? And you picture yourself with, like, a sword or something, you know, and face painted blue, and the movie camera shines in. And to live as Christ, to die is gain. But listen, it's not a Christian philosophy. It's the cry of those who are victorious in Jesus. Now, as he continues to share his heart, you're going to be really interested in what happens next. Okay, check this out. Next slide. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. In other words, if Christ decides to keep me alive, I'm not just going to take up space. I'm not going to take up space in an auditorium. I'm not going to take up space in Christendom. If he keeps me alive, it's go time. If he keeps me alive, it's his time. So fruitful labor. And some may say, well, that's kind of pompous of Paul to think he's going to have fruitful labor. What do you want him to say? And if God keeps me alive, you know what? I'm going to be lethargic, complacent, and sit on the bench. Would you be more encouraged if he said that? Like, what do you want him to do in waiting? Here's what he says. Look, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. In other words, both options are very good. Now, specifically on one option, here's what he says in verse 23. Crazy, crazy text. I am hard-pressed between the two, to live or to die. The Greek phrase uh, paints this picture of uh, someone who's walking in between two rock cliffs that are like closing in on them. He's saying, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Now, when you read the word by yourself sometimes... And when you're like reading it, like speed reading it, like so many of you have been unfortunately trained to do, you miss one of the key components of this verse. An unbelievably beautiful part of this entire text is when he says, I long to depart and not go to heaven, but to what? To be with Christ. He doesn't say like, I want to go to the pearly gates, or I want to go where the streets are gold, or I want to go where I can eat all you can eat pizza all the time he's like he's saying I want to go and be with Jesus he brings us into the object of his faith the object of his faith is not Christianity the object of his faith is not singing songs the object of his faith is not living religiously the object of his faith is not confessing things with his mouth and then distancing his life from it the object of his faith is the person of Christ Jesus nothing else like a deep love for the character of God in his son Christ. And I feel like there's a lot of confusion, maybe for you, certainly in our culture, about what it is that we're even worshiping. Let me make sure you understand, it's not an idea. We're not worshiping churchianity. We're not worshiping the ability to bark out rules and then follow them. We are worshiping a king. A risen, reigning Lord, the person of Christ. And so the longing to be with him. The king who's compassionate, the king who's gracious, the king who's merciful, the king whose love has no bounds. The longing for the eternal unity with that is what Paul is talking about. And he's like, that's far better than anything else. Some of you have still grown this picture in your mind that heaven is going to be like awaiting for you, all this other kind of stuff. Let me make sure you understand what heaven is. It's an, eternal, it's an eternal worship gathering for the Lord Jesus. Like that's what it is. We gather and we praise. We gather and we worship. 
And if that doesn't excite you now, like what do you think? You think you're all of a sudden going to get excited about that for an eternity? Like that's what Paul longs for. I want to be with Christ. It's far better. So imagine this, like all the junk that you're in right now. Everything you got going on, every stress, every fear. Isn't the thought of being with Christ like way, way, way better? But some of you are like, I'm not sure. I've got it pretty good. Got a good relationship. I mean, I can kind of pursue my pleasures. I'm not sure if it's far better. Paul challenges that mindset next when he says this, verse 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. There's still work to be done. He says confidently, convinced of this, verse 25, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And again, some of you are like, that's really pompous of Paul. He's saying that in confidence that God's going to leave him alive because he's going to be a blessing to those that he's ministering to. Again, what do you want him to say? Hey, God's going to keep me alive and I'm going to be a punk and a thorn in your side. And I'm going to preach anti-gospel and I'm going to steer you away from my own gain. No. I say all the time, God is doing a work in us to do a work through us. And yes, that can have selfish motive if you take it too far. But the beauty of it is, I want God to do a work with me and in me. So God, do what you want. And that's Paul's heart in this. I'm not going to sit on the bench. It's not going to be fruitless. It's going to be fruitful. So that he says in verse 25, or verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. He says, I'm confident I'm not going to die. He did this on the shipwreck and other times in his life. I know it's not. My time, my time will still be used to come and minister to you in Philippi. And now, Christmas morning. You guys ready? You guys remember Christmas morning like when you were really young? Come down those stairs, Right? And for me, it was like waiting on that Game Boy, you know. And, and then there was like, there's always like these deceivingly wrapped packages. Do you remember like when your parents wrapped something like massive and then it was a gift card? You know, it was like this huge box. These next two things won't seem like Christmas presents. But I want to tell you, they're gifts from the Lord. Verse 27. Only, he says now. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Here's the action step. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We see this same accommodation in Colossians and Ephesians and 1 Thessalonians and Timothy. Let your life be worthy, he says. So as I back away from that, I'm like, so am I supposed to pursue worthiness? That's kind of weird. Because I start thinking in my catalog about when Peter first interacts with Jesus and he gets on his face because he says he's unworthy. I think of the story where uh, Jesus goes to John the Baptist to be baptized by him. And John the Baptist is like, dude, I need to, he doesn't say dude. He's like, Jesus, I need, like, I need to baptize you or you need to baptize me. I, like, this is, we, you got this wrong. So there's this like consistent pattern of these disciples and, and later apostles who in their unworthiness put themselves before Jesus. But here's what Jesus says in uh, Mark chapter 10. 
Matthew chapter 10, rather, he says, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Well, my worthiness certainly can't be found in my own efforts. In other words, I'm not going to like take my case and say, hey, God, I'm worthy. So you should love me. I've done this and this and this. And I mean, look at my resume, God. You certainly should love me. I'm certainly then worthy. No. The worthiness that he's talking about here is the kind of worthiness that's in response to the gift that you've been given. Well, the gift that you've been given is you are completely unworthy, undeserving, should die. Instead, Christ enters your timeline and says, you know what? Now, though they were waiting to die, now they actually get to live forever with me. And they're going to be found worthy, not on their own effort, but because I have lived perfectly and worthy of them now being called my sons and daughters. And so the life that's worthy is in response to that. I'm undeserved. I don't and shouldn't get anything, but he is graciously extended. And so, you know what? I'm going to live in response to that. I want to forgo my passions. I want to forgo my lusts. I want to purge my fears. Because somehow I'm considered a son and a daughter of the king. And that is an insane blessing. Uh, so for some of you right now that are responding to God's grace um, by spitting on it, I want you to let the heaviness of that moment sit on your shoulders a bit. I remember being a kid, like one of the most grotesque things that anyone could ever do was spit in your face. Has anyone ever spat in your face before? Like doesn't it just evoke like a new kind of rage? Like if someone walks right up to your face and hawks a loogie and it's like dripping down your cheek. I mean, that's when all of us could maybe kill a man, you know? And yet some of us right now with our life just consistently spitting in the face of the Lord. I don't care. I don't care what you've done. I don't care who you are. I'm living my own deal, doing my own thing. Verse 28, he adds to this thought. He says this, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. There's no need for you to be frightened. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. You guys get what he's saying? There's a, have you guys ever heard of Veggie Tales? (laughs) Let's have a pickle moment, shall we? Um, So Veggie Tales, if if you haven't heard of this, and please forgive me, because I know this sounds really weird, but it was this creation of like these vegetables that were sharing stories about God. Really weird, I understand. But there's this one story that, that speaks precisely to this. So this baby pickle um, goes to the park one day, okay? And the baby pickle sh- shows up, and there's a bully, and I think he's like an asparagus or something, okay? And actually, what would be a better bully vegetable? What's a better, like, a squash. It might have been a squash. That squash is good. Let's go with squash. There's a big, nasty, gnarly squash, okay, who's a bully. And the bully tells the pickle, like, hey, you need, like, this is my part. And so the bully runs away, or, or the, the, the pickle runs away scared, and he goes home to his daddy, you know, like, sucking his thumb, right? And his dad's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
You go back there and you stand your ground. And you'll be amazed at what the bully does. So sure enough, the pickle goes back, looking in the face of the squash, and the squash is like, hey, you need to leave. This is my park. And the little measly pickle says, no, it's not your park. I'm not going anywhere. And his friends are like, yeah, we're not going anywhere. And then there's like this moment of pause, and the bully's like, all right, like whatever. You know, like so he was like talking such a big game, but then all of a sudden when the, the people didn't back down, it completely changed the perspective. Now let's read the text again. Listen to this. And to not be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, of their own insecurities, of their own fear, but of your salvation. People talk a lot about what's our persecution in America. Okay? Most of you haven't been in a life or death situation. Most of you haven't had a gun pointed at your head saying, do you believe in, in Christ? What are our sufferings? I would say that the two greatest things are skepticism and cynicism. Uh, you're consistently met with skeptics, met with doubters. Christ isn't real. The whole thing's made up. All you've done, all you Jesus people, is made up a bunch of stories so that you feel better about an eternity. So there's all kinds of skeptics. And you, some of you have been ridiculed by skeptics. You've been uh, blamed against skeptics. Some of them are your greatest friends, and some of them are your family members. Now the cynics are those who, or, or cynicism in general, are those who believe that what you're doing is actually for like selfish motive. They're questioning your motive. I would say in America, those are the two greatest persecutions. Now, can I ask you, at the end of the day, as tight and close and as that family member is, like how much skepticism or cynicism can tear your identity in Christ away. And yet it's so easy for us in those moments, and again, I know some of them are so personal and intimate, for you just to run the other direction. And knowing that his readers would be struggling with this, he gives Christmas present number two. Check this out, verse 29. For it has been granted, and the word granted in the Greek, gifted. It has been gifted or granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should A, not only believe in him, but B, also suffer for his sake. Okay, there's this, there's this gospel and doctrine in our culture uh, that many of you have come to understand as the prosperity gospel that says that Cancer and God have no mesh, that God can't use this, that there's no way, you know, any kind of suffering would come from God. Are they reading their Bible? I got this out of the Bible. Okay, Philippians. I didn't make this up, all right? I didn't Dr. Oz this. This didn't come from Oprah. This is straight from the Word. And the Word says, look at this, that you should not only believe, but He's actually gifted you with the opportunity the grace to suffer for his sake. To take on the ridicule. To sit in the face of the scoffers. To day after day after day that those co-workers berate you because of your passion for Christ. You get the gift of being ridiculed. Jesus told his disciples, they don't hate you, they hate me. 
So think about that. Your association with Christ guarantees suffering. This passage summarizes this. He says, um, suffer for his sake, verse 30, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You're invited into this thing that wasn't just for Jesus but was for all of us now. So I used to say this in, uh, when I was a youth pastor all the time, and I never believed it, but I said it anyway. Because it, it was a cliche. It was like you were trained this in youth pastor school. All right, so if you're, if you're not suffering at all, like if, if no one's ridiculing you, if no one's combating you, if no one's going against you, then what does that say about you? And I would always say it, and I didn't believe it. Tonight I believe it. It is God's grace that we would suffer with Him. A gift from the Lord that we could bear His name unashamedly and stand in this culture that quite honestly at times is seemingly easy to stand in and we get the chance in a very post-Christian culture to proclaim the name of Christ, doing so by the empowerment of the Spirit for His glory and glory alone and take the ridicule and take the shame that, that, that somehow is heaped on us from them. My friends, this is a gift from, from God. It's association with the Creator. It's association with the Savior. It's a Christmas present. And so then all of a sudden you're like, yeah, I, don't, I just don't know that I'm interested in that then I just want to make sure you understand. If that's not what you're interested in, I just want to make sure we all know what we're signing up for. I, I, want, to, I, I want to make sure right now we're all on the same page for what the following of Jesus is. Okay? You desire to follow Christ, you don't have to go look for suffering. It's going to come to you. Because that's how some people have interpreted this. Oh, I need to look for suffering. So they hop online and they find like the, the local, you know, conversation that's going to happen in their culture. And then they show up where some, you know, some people are talking about evolution and they just start walking in and dropping Christian grenades everywhere, you know. Oh, you guys are talking about evolution? You guys are all idiots. You know, like let me tell you about creation. And they just start dropping nukes everywhere. And then they're like, bring it on. I'm suffering for the cause of Christ. No, you're suffering for yourself. I'll guarantee you proclaiming the name of Jesus, living and dying with the image of Christ as central, suffering will find you. You won't have to find it. In America, Mark? Yes, in America. Tomorrow, Mark? I believe so. So, what do we do with this next slide, with this like paradigm, with this life and death picture, this all-consuming Christ-centric life like how is it that we embrace this? How does it leave the Christian philosophy and actually become a part of us? Here's what Corinthians so beautifully says. Please hear this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, you guys see that? What's the word there? For this what? Come on. This light momentary affliction. Every ridicule from the parents, every condemnation from the friend, every co-worker that cusses you out because of your stance for Christ, every light 
momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. Hear this truth. The things that are unseen are eternal. And this then becomes more than a Christian rally cry or a mantra. It becomes together people who have said for themselves, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. So I don't want to talk to the church body tonight. I want to talk to you individually, every single one of you. Where do you stand with this tonight? Is this your desire? Does your desire match with your life? Mark, is this a call to perfection? No. I've confessed my own imperfection tonight, but by God's grace, I'm able to stand in confidence and in boldness and assurance that my life and my death are for him and because of him. All the fears, all the anxieties, is tonight this faith real for you? And uh, I'm so grateful tonight that some of you are here and don't believe at all. And you're the epitome of a skeptic or cynic. Thank you for coming. I would invite you to continue to journey with us. I hope that what you find here is people who are loving, who leave the judgment seat to the judge, and who embrace people on their journey not expecting non-believers to act like Christians. What if tonight God did more in you than just owning a philosophy? What if tonight he could literally take every fear from us and we could embrace the eternal perspective that is ours in Christ? Let's stand together, come on. for you, my love for you is that you would understand what the timeline is and so tonight I again, I have things that I've been deeply convicted about in teaching this and I have things in areas that I just, I want to confess and give to the Lord So what we're going to do right now is we're like we're just going to make this place a place of confession. God, here are my fears. God, here's where I've flat out been ashamed of you. God, here's where I've lived a me-centric life. Like, I'm very distant from you, God, tonight. I'm, I'm tired, I'm weary, I'm complacent. Let's just spend some time confessing those fears and doubts. Repent of those things. Come on. Pray to them. Cry out to them.
So God, hear our confessions. I pray that you'll meet our confession with assurance of forgiveness. I pray right now, God, through the power of your son, Jesus, that you would kill the lies of the enemy in our ears. That you would get rid of right now any thoughts of condemnation or guilt that would hang past sin over us. I thank you, God, that we're forgiven. So I pray, God, tonight that as we celebrate as victors, that you would stir in us a desire, a longing, a craving for you, the person of you. Not all the benefits or the things that come with you, but just you, your character, your love. God, grow tonight our love of you. And I pray, Lord, that in doing that, our passion and pursuits of the things of this world would fade. And we would hold deep assurance in the things that are unseen. Thank you, God, for pulling us out of darkness.